0: Open up your Bible, if you would, this morning to 1 John 5, verse 13, and we're going to read down through verse 21. It's the final section of 1 John. We've been um, journeying through 1 John verse by verse, and today our journey comes to a conclusion as we finish this epistle. It's on page 879 of the Bible that's in the seat baskets in front of you in case you need a Bible this morning. 1 John 5, 13 through 21. Now, that song we just sang asked a question, What child is this? What child is this? What do you have to say about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus Christ, about the person and the work of Jesus Christ? That is one of the tests that John has put forth in this epistle. As he's been trying to give the believers assurance, he has given us some ways to examine our faith. To examine whether or not our relationship with God is true and real. And, and there's been different tests, and one of those tests simply asks, What do you believe about God's Christ? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you do you it's the doctrinal test? Do you embrace the apostolic teaching about Jesus? Do you embrace the divine witness about Jesus? The threefold divine witness we talked about last week. That's one of the tests. One of the other tests is, what do you? Do you love God's children? So, what do you believe about about God's Christ? And do you love God's children? Because if you are a child of God, you will therefore love God's children. Do you have love for God but also love for others, especially love for the brothers? Yet another test has been the ethical test or the the test of, of obedience. So so who do you what do you think of God's Christ? Do you love God's children and do you love and obey God's commands? Do you love God's word, his commandments, and do you keep them? Do you want to keep them? And those are some of the tests that John has put forth all throughout this little letter. And he's come back around to those many times now. And I, I said a couple of weeks ago, it's like, a, it's like a spiral staircase. And this is someone else's illustration that I'm borrowing. But he, John keeps coming back to the same themes over and over again as he takes us higher and higher into our understanding of assurance. And so John is drawing things to a close today in these last verses, this last assurance that he's going to give us. And basically what he's doing in this last passage. Is he's laying out his purpose statement for the letter. Which we've referred to several times throughout the series. And then he's showing us what comes from that assurance. What's the, the fruit that now flows out of a person who has rock solid assurance. Someone who has taken the tests and passed the test. And therefore has assurance. What should we expect? How should that person now live? And so that's what we're going to see in First John 5. Verses 13 through 21. So please stand, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture. We stand in the honor of reading God's Word. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 13. This is the holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired, breathed out Word of God. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin ...that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God... ...does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him... ...and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God... ...and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come... ...and has given us understanding... ...so that we may know him who is true... ...and we are in him who is true... ...in his Son, Jesus Christ... He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, I pray, Lord, that you would draw out of it for us through your Holy Spirit what you want Harbin's Community Baptist Church on this day, December 13th, 2015, to have from this text. What do you want us to take from this? There's so much that could be said about these last, verses. But Father, I pray that you guide my tongue, that I might say what you want me to say, and open up our ears to hear what you want us to hear. So God, we pray that you be glorified, and we thank you now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. For centuries, mankind was certain, absolutely certain, that rotten apples spontaneously generated Little worms and grubs, if they sat there. Just all of a sudden, out of the middle of these apples would come little worms and grubs. And they were certain about that until a simple experiment in 1767 proved otherwise. For centuries, people were certain that disease came from miasma, which is a stench or foul air that emanates from from something like a, like a swamp, or from, from stagnant water, or from putrefying rubbish. People were certain that that's how you got sick, just smelling that stuff. Certain that was until 1864 when a man named Louis Pasteur discovered tiny living organisms invisible to the human eye called germs. For decades, due largely to the theories of Benjamin Franklin... Everyone thought that electricity, everyone was certain that electricity was a fluid. That was until 1897 when it was proved otherwise. For a long time, mankind were certain that the atom was indivisible until the same guy that proved electricity wasn't a fluid likewise proved that atoms were indeed divisible. People were certain that light was made up of particles until 1801 when People were certain that it was no longer particles; it was waves, until 18, uh, I mean 1924, I mean 1905, when once again people said it was particles. Until 1924, when people determined it was both particles and waves. The greatest scientific minds of humanity were certain, absolutely rock solid certain, that space and time were both. Absolutes until 1886, when the crazy concept of relativity was introduced, setting the stage for a man named Einstein. Over and over, mankind has seemed to be certain about something only to be shown that they were wrong. These things listed that I just listed out are are some of the many things mentioned by a, a science historian named James Burke in his attempt to demonstrate. What he calls the uncertainty of all things. His goal in, in demonstrating what he calls the uncertainty of all things is to pr- promote relativism, which indeed has come to be almost fully embraced by our postmodern culture, our postmodern worldview. The culture no longer seeks certainty, instead, it embraces doubt as a virtue to be lauded. Doubt is in, relativism rules. Absolutes are out. And certainty is even considered absurd and arrogant. Well, that makes First John quite out of sync with the prevailing philosophical winds of our day because John wants you to have rock-solid certainty. Absolute certainty about your faith, about your relationship with God, about eternal life. He wants us to know How can we know? Well, 1 John tells us how we can know. He doesn't want our relationship with God to to rest on our feelings, to rest on our instincts, to rest on on how we think things are going in our life at this time. He wants us to have something outside of us to put our hope in. And so he gives us 1 John. We can have rock-solid Confidence and certainty intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually about our faith. And that's why he wrote this book today. Unlike the wobbly world of science where theories come and go, God's word is absolute truth, fixed and unchangeable because it is breathed out by God, a God who is unchangeable. Malachi 3 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, his law, his word, which flows out of his character, does not change. And neither does the means by which he saves mankind. The means his word, the Bible, testifies to. Namely, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus does not change, Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when it comes to God and his word and to Jesus Christ, his Son, and to our salvation itself, we can and should have rock-solid certainty. We can know. That is why John has written this book. And that's what we have in the very first verse of today's passage. We have John's purpose statement for the book. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is John's statement for the whole book. This is why he's writing all of these things that he's, that's come before. And it, it really marries well with John's purpose statement for his gospel. Remember in the gospel of John, he does something similar. He waits till the end of the book to give us his purpose statement. John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, John writes the gospel with an evangelism focus so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ and thereby have eternal life. And then he writes his first epistle with an edification focus so that those who already believe may know with rock solid certainty that they do indeed have eternal life. John wants to give believers true assurance. And throughout this book, as I mentioned earlier, he's been helping us have Assurance. He's been giving us some tests so we may examine ourselves in a few different areas. Examine ourselves by asking whether or not we love and obey God's commandments. Examine ourselves in regards to whether or not we love and and serve God's children. And examine ourselves in regards to whether or not we love and believe what the apostles taught about God's Christ. The man Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember, there have been false teachers who had infiltrated the churches of Asia Minor... And they had rattled the confidence of many of the people in the church. They had introduced new secret teachings about Jesus that denied his full humanity. These false Gnostic teachers, they dismissed the call for holy living because the physical really wasn't that important anyway. What you did in the body wasn't that important. What was more important was some sort of esoteric secret knowledge. These teachers dismissed the call to live holy lives and they abandoned. They separated themselves from God's people. We read about that, that they they didn't love the children of God. They actually separated themselves from the children of God. They had, in essence, proven themselves not to have true faith. But John is confident that those to whom he's writing do indeed have true faith. They are true believers and they have the Son of God, thus they have eternal life. In today's text, after John gives us this purpose statement for why he has written the letter, John gets really practical and helps us to see the fruit that should flow from a Christian's assurance. The fruit that should be happening in someone who who lives with rock-solid assurance in their faith. And so that's what we're going to see today. If we have confident assurance that 1 John 5.13 says we should have, then it should show itself in the way we pray in the way we live, in the way we think. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is that our assurance regarding who Christ is for us leads to confident praying. Our assurance regarding who Christ is, because we want to, remember, it's the doctrinal test. Who are you believing in? And if we're sure of who Christ is for us and what he's done for us, well, that leads to confident praying. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. Now this is the fourth time that John has spoken in this letter about believers having confidence. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 28, and also in chapter 4, verse 17, he speaks of of us having confidence in regards to our sins being forgiven and us being able to, to stand at his coming on the day of judgment. And then in 1 John 3, 21, just like today's text, he speaks of confidence in praying, confidence in going before the Lord for prayer, And this is the confidence that we have toward him. Now, toward him, it carries the idea of approaching God. The confidence we have to come before God, to approach God. So, believers who are sure of their faith have confidence to approach God in bold, free prayer. Now, this is astonishing to think that we can approach a holy God. But if we are sure of our faith in Jesus Christ... And if we are sure of who he is, of what the apostles say about who he is, then we can approach God with confidence. We know what our status is before God. We know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And therefore, we can come before the throne of grace with great confidence. And what has Jesus done for us? As we saw last week, Jesus at his baptism and at his death and resurrection, the baptism is the water. His death and resurrection is the blood. At, with his baptism, with the, with the water and the blood, he has shown himself to be our high priest. So Hebrews 4.14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10, 19, likewise, speaks of having confidence to enter the holy of holies, the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians three twelve speaks of us having boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. So the one who knows... The one who has that relationship with God and knows that that relationship is real has assurance. He has a relationship with God, therefore he can boldly, confidently, freely come because of the work that Christ has done and is doing for us. Now, I didn't ask him beforehand. I was going to if I could use him as an illustration, but I I think that Austin, if you wake up back there, hey, uh, Austin, I think, uh, went to a Falcons game recently and actually got to sit in an owner's booth with the owners. Now, Austin did not get to do that because he was someone special and asked, and they, the Falcons said, yeah. Oh, you mean, you're, are you kidding? You mean Austin Thomas wants to sit in our booth? By all means, get him up here now. That's not at all. There was no confidence in himself. And I don't even know the circumstances, but somebody knew somebody. Somebody had a relationship with somebody that got you in that booth. And that's the case with us. It's not about us. It's that we have confidence in the one who is the Son of God, and we are united to him. Therefore, we are in relationship with God, and therefore, we can come in with confidence. We have been invited into something much greater than Arthur Blank's little booth. We've been invited into the Holy of Holies to bring our requests and petitions to the Holy God. And That's what we have. In Christ and this authentic relationship allows us to ask anything, but not just anything we want, anything according to his will. Remember, the, the true believer loves God and loves and keeps God's commandments, which means he loves God's will, and thus the desires that drive his prayer life are the desires that God's will be accomplished. Therefore, he prays effective powerful prayers, or at least that's the way it should be. Unfortunately, many of us ask God the way our kids ask for things for Christmas. How many kids in here, how many of you asked your parents for something specific for Christmas? Just just be honest. You've, You've specifically mentioned something to your parents. You've asked them, mother, father, I want this. So how many of you? Just raise your hands real quick. All right, I see a big hand back there. All right, the other Austin, thank you for being honest. All right, he's asked for something. Many of you have. How many of you have rock-solid, absolute confidence you're going to get exactly what you asked for? I don't see as many hands. I didn't see Austin's hand back there. I, I think we treat God like Santa Claus, and we ask for God whatever we think we want according to our will, and we hope that at least some of it comes true. So, so here are the kids on, on Sunday on, on, on Christmas morning, right? You got you, you you see the gift there, and actually, you do this maybe before the actual morning, and you pick it up. And what do you do? You go. Did they did did they do? Did, did they actually bend their will to mine? Did I get what I what I want? And then you open it up, and <laughs> triscuits. That's the, I had no idea that's what was in here. All right. I didn't want triscuits. That's not what I was aiming for. And I think that's the way many of us pray, just hoping if we pull back the the wrapper of God's answers, it'll be what we wanted. That's not the type of confident praying that John wants us to have. We cannot be like that if we truly contemplate who Christ is for us, our high priest interceding before the throne of grace for us, and who we are, children of God. If we truly understand these things, then we will be people who want God's will to be done above our will. We ultimately want God's will to be done. Isn't that why Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 10? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then didn't he model that for us in Luke chapter 22 verse 42 as he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Our desire should be for our will to be bent to His will. So how then do we know God's will? How do I know how to pray according to His will? Well, let me just say this. Don't be Gnostic. Some people treat God's will like it's some secret knowledge that you've got to find access to. If I can just, if I can just somehow get some secret knowledge or, or, you know, I woke up this morning, I heard God saying this in my ears. We are filled, the church is filled with Gnostics seeking some sort of secret revelation from God. How do you know God's will? Stop trying to discern his secret sovereign will. The secret things belong to the Lord and submit yourself to his clearly revealed will. The word of God is his revealed will to mankind. And that's how we pray according to his will. We submit our prayers to the scriptures. The Bible is the revealed will of God. And so confident praying is anchored in the scriptures. And it's one of the reasons that we began recently, even though we had been doing some scripture reading with our men's prayer, but recently we began to try to anchor our prayer times in the Psalms. And so men's prayer tonight, if you can make it, we'd love to see you there. We want to anchor our prayer time in Psalm 7 tonight. Let Psalm 7 drive us so that we'll be praying according to God's will. John fifteen seven. If you abide in me, this is Jesus speaking, and what? My words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Wow. If his words abide in us. That transforms our prayer life. These are the types of prayers that God hears, meaning when it says here in the text that He hears these prayers, it simply means He, he gives heed to them. It's not just that he, he acknowledges them, He gives heed to them. The prayers are aligned to His will. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing Our will upon God Or bending his will to ours But it is the prescribed way Of subordinating our will to his And when our will is lined up with his Then what delights him delights us Psalm 37 4 Delight yourself in the Lord And he will give you the desires of your heart Confident praying is is prayer Born out of a true and abiding relationship with God Saturated with his word John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, meaning under his authority and for his glory. And it's God's will to exalt the Son. So so whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we continue to read in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. God delights to give affirmative answers to whatever is in accordance with his will. And sometimes we have to wait before we know if God's really going to answer if what we've been praying is actually according to his will. So We pray and we pray and we pray and we line our, our praying up with the scriptures. and We line our expectations up with the scriptures and we wait on the Lord. So kids, you know, if you go to your parents and ask them something, their answer is going to depend on whether or not what you're asking is according to their will. So if Emma Kate comes and says, hey, dad, do you mind if I repaint the kitchen? My answer is going to be, no, you may not repaint the kitchen. If she says, hey, mom, can I, can I help with dinner? It may be a meal that we're preparing that she can help with. So yeah, come, come help. It may be something she can't help with at that time. So no, you, you can't. If Emma Kate says, Dad, do you mind if I clean up my room? <laughs> the answer is going to be in the affirmative every time. To the degree that our prayers are lined up with God's will, we see powerful answers coming from God. He may not always give the answer in the timing we want, but if we pray, if what we pray is what He wants, He answers. Prayer is his means for advancing his will. Reform folks are often asked, why pray if God is sovereign? To which I simply reply, that God has so chosen to order the universe that the willing prayers of his men and his women are the means that he sovereignly ordained to accomplish his ends. If God is sovereign, why pray? I ask, if God isn't sovereign, why pray? The sovereignty of God gives confidence that when we're praying according to his will, we get answers. If God's not sovereign, then we're just hoping. Hoping we don't get a box of Triscuits. Matter of fact, God's sovereignty is such. God's sovereignty is such that his spirit makes sure believers offer up prayers aligned with his will. Romans eight twenty six says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit in us, the indwelling presence of the Holy God, is constantly making up for our deficiencies. Wow, that gives me confidence in my prayer life. And so we have the Spirit interceding, and according to Romans three eight 34 and Hebrews 7.25, Jesus, as our high priest, which we've already mentioned, the one who opened up the way for us to come before God also intercedes for us continually. So with all of that, with our knowledge of, of who Christ is and, and what he has done for us and, and the Holy Spirit's presence with us, we can pray with absolute confidence. We can do exactly what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So our assurance, our assurance regarding who Christ is for us leads to confident praying, but it also must lead to intercessory praying. Intercessory praying. First John 5, 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now, immediately when we read this text, our minds are trying to figure out what on earth is a sin leading to death. That sounds very scary. And I will talk about that in a second. But I want us to focus on the main point here. I think too much ink has been spilt, to be honest with you, on trying to figure out what sin leading to death is. And it leads us away from the focus of the text. And that is we should be praying for one another, interceding for one another. Now, some say that verses 16 through 18 are simply an illustration. John's, just, John's talking about praying confidently, and now in, in, he's just going to give us an illustration of what he was trying to say earlier in verses 14 through 15. But I think this is more than merely an illustration. I think John is showing us how we are to exercise our confident prayer life. We are to boldly and freely approach God on behalf of one another. It's not that we don't lift up prayers for ourselves and our needs, but this whole letter has been teaching us that the evidence that we are God's children is that we love God's children. We love one another. And if we love one another, then we will pray for one another. We will have other-focused prayer. James 4, verse 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. On your passions, powerful praying is other-focused praying. And how specifically does John highlight that here in our prayer for our brothers? Well, we are to intercede on each other's behalf when we see sin in each other's lives. Remember, we are to pray according to God's will. And, and what is God's will for his children? First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So God hears our prayers when we are praying for one another's sanctification. We know that's God's will. So when you pray for my sanctification and I pray for your sanctification, those are prayers that God hears and answers. And we can have rock-solid confidence in that because it's written right here, it is the will of God. If we pray according to His will, He will answer. We pray for one another's sanctification. God hears our prayers when we are praying for one another, which means we are also praying for one another's holiness. Sanctification means holiness, holiness. Which means we are praying for one another to defeat sin. To overcome sin. Sanctification, growing in holiness, becoming more like Christ, putting sin to death is a community project. It's a community project. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. It is the church's job to make sure sanctification is happening. In one another. And one of the ways we do that is through our prayer life. So when we see a brother sinning, we are to, as Galatians 6 2 says, bear that burden by praying for him. We are to intercede on his behalf. And according to this text, God will give him life. And what does that mean, that God will give him life? Well, we know that the person being prayed for is already a brother, according to the text here. So John is not saying that our praying for them somehow earns eternal life on their behalf. Eternal life is earned by Christ's finished work alone. But there is a sense, scripturally, in which we are growing into what has already been purchased for us. Already, not yet. We are growing into what's already been purchased for us. So we are saved, according to Ephesians 2.8, but we are still being saved, according to 1 Corinthians 15.2. We are attaining, according to Philippians 3.11, what has already been attained for us, according to Romans 9.30. So we have eternal life through faith, John 3.16, yet we are still, according to 1 Timothy 6.12, to take hold of eternal life. So eternal life is the gift of God but according to Romans 6.22 it is also the product of our sanctification and therefore it is something we still even though it's been purchased for us we strive for and we fight for if sanctification is as I said a minute ago that it's a community project then praying for one another to defeat sin is the way we are helping each other take hold of eternal life. So when we pray for each other to defeat sin we are taking hold of eternal life for one another. I think that's what we also see in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Now, we need to give some attention to this mysterious comment of John's about a sin leading to death. What is John talking about in this sin that leads to death. Now, there are, there are several different views, but there are three main views. Number one is that some people think it's a specific sin. There is a specific sin or set of sins that if you commit those, you're done. So this would be the Catholic view. The Catholics have a difference between venial sins and mortal sins. So a sin like murder or adultery or whatever, those, those, those put you in a category where you're now on a road towards eternal damnation and death. I do not believe that we can build a doctrine of venial and mortal sins simply on this passage here today, and there's many other reasons for that, but I would say that John is not focusing here on a specific sin, like murder or something like that. But secondly, some folks think this is referring to God's discipline, Okay, that people can sin, a believer can sin to the point that God's just going to take him out. God's going to discipline him and then take him out because his continued lifestyle is becoming a... A, a, a stain on the church or whatever. So, so the example, of this would be maybe Ananias and Sapphira, right? They come, they bring their offering, they, were, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were done. Or maybe First Corinthians um, chapter eleven, where, where um, Paul talks about not taking the Lord's Supper in, in, a, in an inappropriate way, and he still talks about how some have become sick and even some have died. So, is that what, God, is, that what is John's referring to here? Is, is that is there's some sort of sin? that it's a discipline of the Lord and that God's going to bring someone to an end, and so you don't pray for that person? Well, I don't think that's what John's referring to. Even if, even if that is true, that God does discipline in that sort of way, I don't think that's what John is referring to here, because how would that play out practically? I mean, how do, how do you know that? And what if someone does pass away suddenly from some sort of disease or something? Do we just assume, well, I guess they had that sin leading to death? It doesn't work out that way. It doesn't play out that way in the church body. Thirdly, and I think this one has more merit, some believe this is referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus mentions in Mark chapter 12 and verses 31 through 32. And I think this is closest, and I think it's related to that, although it's not a perfect parallel. I think it's related to that. Now, for a full treatment of that text, Matthew 12, specifically verses 31 through 32, I'll refer you back to the sermon April 19th of this year, 2015, we preached that text of Scripture and In that text of Scripture, we dealt with this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But in that sermon, we concluded that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was an act of rejecting the very clear evidence put forth by God's Spirit, showing that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. This blasphemy was wide-eyed, willful rejection of Jesus, despite the very clear evidence from the Holy Spirit. So I think that what's happening here is similar to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But in order to understand what John is saying, I think we need to carefully consider the context of this epistle. So when you come to a difficult passage, consider the context first and foremost. And I think that's what we're going to do here. So first of all, John is telling us, okay, he's reminding us, I should say, by telling us to pray for our brothers who are sinning. First of all, he's reminding his readers that though they are and they have been called not to practice sin, they cannot say they are without sin. Instead, they must be continually confessing their sin to God, as as, 1 John 1 9 tells us, confessing their sin to God and trusting in Jesus Christ as their advocate. And so what we see here is is he wants them to help, wants wants them to be helping one another deal with indwelling sin by praying for one another. So first of all, I think we need to remember that. Even though he's calling them to holiness, there's still sin within the people of God. So remember that. And then secondly, We need to remember who John is battling here. Who were the false teachers? What had they done? They had infiltrated the church. They had led many astray. They were people who willfully rejected the apostolic word about the nature and work of Christ. They stubbornly refused to obey God's commandments. And they hated the brothers, evidenced by the fact that they separated themselves from the churches. Thus they had proven themselves to be false brothers. And so when we consider the context of the letter, I think what John is saying is something like this. Friends... You know that you should not be practicing sin, but you still struggle with it. So pray for one another. Help each other deal with sin. But what I'm talking about, brothers, is the sin within the church, the sin within the brotherhood. I'm not talking about those, those, that sin that these other people have committed. They separated themselves from you. I'm not talking about them. Their denial of Christ, their denial of the apostolic teaching, their denial of the commandments, it proves that they are on a pathway towards death. I'm not telling you to pray for them. I'm telling you to pray for the brothers. Edify one another through your prayers. Don't worry about them. Don 't worry about the ones who keep going after death. I think that 's something more in line with what John is saying here. And by the way, John doesn 't explicitly forbid them to pray for those who have committed sin unto death. he 's just saying it's not what needs to consume ourselves it 's not what he wants us spending our prayer energies on. Pray for your brothers, pray for those who hate their sin. Pray for those who are fighting their sin. And don't spend your prayer capital on those who show wide-eyed, willful rejection of Jesus despite the very clear teaching of the apostles. And as we saw last week, the very clear evidence put forth by God himself. These folks were sinning unto death. They are doing the opposite of what the brothers are doing. They're not taking hold of life. Instead, they are taking hold of death and the wrath of God remains on them. And so he's drawing a distinction here. Pray for the brothers. Don't spend your prayer energies on these folks that have shown themselves not to be brothers. So in some ways, this text is more similar to what Paul is dealing with in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, where, where discipline is to be carried out against those who, who claim to be Christ, yet remain in unrepentant sin. They are told to be put out of the church. They are told, the church is told not even to fellowship with them. Instead, they are to purge the evil and deliver the sinner over to Satan. So I think that's the that church discipline is more connected with this passage than, than perhaps what we might first think. And I think part of the reason for that is what comes up the very next thing in the sermon here, the very next portion of the passage, 1 John 5:18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been who he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Does not touch him. The evil one has no 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 authority over the one who is a believer. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's two groups of people. There are those who lie in the power of the evil one and those are those who are in the church. John is saying, I want you to pray for your brothers. These other ones, they're under Satan's dominion right now. They're committing sin that leads to death because they're rejecting their only hope for life. So our assurance regarding who Christ is for us leads to confident praying, it leads to intercessory praying, but also, and I'm going to conclude, these last couple of points go a little bit quicker here. Our assurance regarding who we are in Christ leads to holy living. Our assurance is that, as 1 John five eighteen says, we are born of God, and that drives us to do what John says, to not keep on sinning. We know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Again, in the context of this book, it does not mean sinless perfection, but it does mean that we exhibit grace-fueled, spirit-enabled effort to overcome and kill sin, and that's the mark of a true believer. This is why we pray as we do in the previous verses, to help each other do that, to live holy lives, help each other kill sin. But our hope for killing sin does not reside in us. Look closely at the second part of verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. But he who was born of God protects him. The him is us, okay? Everyone born of God. We need protection. So who protects him? He who was born of God. So this is referring to someone other than us. The he and he who is born of God is most certainly referring to Jesus. Who, though he was the co, who is co-eternal with the Father, And at his physical birth was born of God because he was sent from the Father and conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so we can call him the firstborn of God. And also Colossians 1.18 talks of him as being the firstborn from the dead. And so it is he, the one born of God, who protects us. Literally, the word protects here is the word keeps. He he keeps us. John 17.12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one." So Jesus keeps us and he prays that we'd be kept. He's interceding for us even right now that we would be kept from the evil one. And verse 18 says the evil one does not touch him. Perhaps a better translation of the word touch there is take hold. Certainly Satan prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. And he does wage war against the saints. But ultimately he can do us no harm. He can even kill us. But he can't take us from the hands of the one who holds us. John 10, 28, I give, this is Jesus again, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So in that sense, Satan can't touch us. He can't touch us. And even if he destroys our body like he tried to destroy Job's, he can't destroy our faith like he couldn't destroy Job's because Jesus holds us. He keeps us. And that's what we see here. Jesus is the one doing the keeping. We are, according to 1 Peter 1, 5, by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He promises to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy in Jude, verse 24. So what confidence that should give us. We know, we know Verse 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, we see there are only two ways to live. You either are from God, meaning you are now with God, you are in him, or you are in the world. You're either in the hand of Jesus or you are in the clutches of Satan. There are only two ways to live. So the confident fruit that flows from our assurance Okay? Notice how, notice the focus on our confident knowledge. Verse 18 said we know. Verse 19 says we know. And verse 20 now says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And so from that I draw my last point. And I won't spend a lot of time on this last point, although I almost thought of adding another sermon because this last uh, verse is so great. Our assurance regarding who we are in Christ leads to clear thinking. Leads to clear thinking. The Son of Man has come. Jesus has come and has given us understanding. The word understanding refers here to the mind, to the intellect. It means that Jesus has given us insight. He has given us comprehension. He has opened up the eyes of our mind and He has changed the disposition of our mind. And so now we can think straight. We can think clearly. We are not, despite what James Burke, the science historian, says, in bondage to doubt, not the believer. The believer, because of who he is in Christ, has a mind that now breaks free from doubt and holds fast to Christ. So look at the progression here. Jesus came, and because he came in the flesh, he has given us understanding, he's opened our minds to understand. And the reason, verse 24, so that we may know him who is true. So that we may know, we may relationally know, not just intellectually, know him who is true. And then verse 20 goes on. And we are in him who is true. So not only do we know the truth, we are united to God who is truth. And we are united to God by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. It says this going on in verse 20. We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. And now referring... To Christ, John says this, this amazing passage: "He, meaning Jesus, is the true God in eternal life. Jesus is the true God and eternal life." What a statement. What confidence we have that we are united to the true God and to eternal life? The reason we have eternal life is we've, become, we've been united to the one who is life. We've been united to the one who cannot die. The one who will live forever. And so Christians, we are the only ones, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant to Mr. James Burke or anyone else, we are the only ones who truly understand the purpose of the world. We are the only ones that truly understand the aim of human history. We are the only ones that truly understand the end of all things. Now that we are in Christ, our minds have been enlightened. Christians are the only ones who know how to truly worship the one true God. We can have certainty about that. Oh, friend, if you have assurance in who Christ is for you, then you have a confident and intercessory prayer life. And if you have assurance of who you are in Christ, then you have the power to pursue holy living and clear thinking. Now, John ends with what seems like an odd note. Verse 21. Little children. now notice again his pastoral care. Little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, where in this book... If I've missed it, you can show me. Where in this book has he mentioned anything about statues made of stone or wood? Not a single place. So what does he mean? He means don't stray from what you've been taught about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't go after a Jesus that this world wants you to go after. Don't go after a Jesus of your own making. Persevere. Keep believing in the Jesus that this little letter speaks of. And thus keep knowing that you truly believe and that you truly belong to him. And don't go after anything that will take the place of this Jesus. Keep yourselves from idols. So let's end it there. So how can we know? That's the question. Well, do you believe in what this little letter has said about Jesus? Do you believe the apostle's word? Do you believe the threefold witness that God showed us last week in the text? That's rock-solid, unchangeable truth. It will not be outdated by scientific discoveries. And do you believe, and do you desire to obey his commandments? And do you love and serve the brothers? And for the unbeliever here this morning, I invite you to believe for the first time and find out what it's like to stand on rock-solid truth. It's simple. Turn from your idols and embrace Jesus, the God, the true God, And eternal life. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. This morning, I pray that you would keep us from idols. I can only imagine that the churches of Asia Minor, including the church in Ephesus, was pretty confident they stood on solid ground. They were pretty confident that they had good unity in the church love, love for you and love for the brothers and yet we see in First Timothy, Second Timothy we see in Revelation that Ephesus, one of those churches of Asia Minor was rocked and all the other churches that had the same confidence were rocked because people snuck in unaware and began to lead people to believe something different about Jesus. So Father, help us to be on our guard against false teaching that will lead people away from what the Scriptures teach us about your Son. Protect this church. And in the process, Lord, embolden our faith Help us to have solid, rock-solid confidence. We believe. We will not be strayed from what we believe about Jesus. And we will, by God's grace, obey his commandments, and we'll help each other in the process. And we'll confess our sin to one another, and we'll pray for one another as we sin. And we will love each other. We will love each other. We will love your children because we love you. And so God, I pray that you would help us, as a result of this little book, have more assurance, but also have resolute, steadfast perseverance that we'll continue to believe in what you have taught us. So we thank you, Father. We pray, Lord, that Jesus was exalted today, and Holy Spirit, we ask now that This final song we sing, that you would use it to, to teach us and to grow us, and that it would be a pleasing aroma of praise to the Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.